Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for listening to all of these great stories that I have lined up for you. This is episode 60, and it's the week of Halloween. So this is going to be a really fun episode. For those of you who have not yet passed on the show, you can hear it on Apple, Google, TuneIn, Spotify, Podbean, uh, Stitcher, and now Amazon and iHeartRadio. So there's a lot of different, uh, lot of different options for you to listen to this show. Now, uh, for those of you who know me, I am a, a big fan of horror movies. I've been one for many years. And in fact, I've been one, I can actually tell you the date in which it really started. And that was in 1988. This was when I was introduced to the big three, you can say, during, during that time. Just so happened that WPIX 11 was airing the first Nightmare on Elm Street on a Monday. And then that Friday, the first Friday the 13th. And later on in the year, when I was, uh, when we, my family and I had moved over to Richmond, Virginia, I was introduced finally to Halloween. And it was way overdue for me to really get into these, to these franchises. But as soon as I, I was in, and I was constantly just absorbing so much of them for all, and thankfully I had a lot to choose from. And during that time, I really got into like all these different franchises, but it seemed very few of them in the theaters. And for Halloween, the first time that I finally got to see a, one of their films in the theaters was when I was a sophomore in college in 1995. And I made the trip by myself to sit down and enjoy Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And it was an interesting experience to say the least. And I came out of it just thinking to myself, like there was a lot there, but then there wasn't a lot there. What, it, what happened to this one? So it was no surprise to me that a couple of years down the road, I learned that there is an actual, what they called producer's cut of Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. And thankfully I happen to have 20 bucks on me at a convention. I was able to get my hands on a VHS tape and I got to see what a lot of what, what was truly originally intended for this, for this film. I remember showing it to my friends who were all just like, why didn't they do this? And uh, so it was a real interesting experience to, to do that. And then years later, because of watching this, uh, because of watching this film and really enjoying the true intentions behind it, I really kept an eye on the name Daniel Farrens. And I was so excited to see that uh, not only did, not only was Dan really championing this producer's cut um, to the point where it actually finally a legitimate commercial release, but he was also the driving force behind the four-hour documentary for the Nightmare on Elm Street series, Never Sleep Again, and the seven-hour documentary for Friday the 13th, Crystal Lake Memories. And I am so thrilled to say, after this very long introduction, that I have the man here with us to talk to us. It is a thrill for me to introduce to you Daniel Farrens. Daniel, how are you, sir? 
I'm great, great, George. Thank you so much for that great introduction, my friend. I appreciate it. And I know you and I have gotten to know each other through social media platforms and stuff, and it's always been fun. And I just always embrace the fans, especially with Halloween, because it's so near and dear to my heart, not just because I did one of the sequels, but I, when I say that I lobbied for the opportunity to write that film, it was a journey that lasted for about well over five years and it took a long time to get there. And I was, I think I, to this day, not anymore, but at the time I was, and I think I, I, I remain the youngest person to have ever authored one of the Halloween movies. I was only 24 when they hired me to do it. 24. Wow. Yeah. I was, wow. it was back, I, probably around the same age because I just kind of finished college and was kicking around Hollywood, trying to get scripts read and sold. And, but my passion of all things, of all having grown up in similar to you, I think I'm years older, but you know, I lived and breathed these movies as a kid and my exposure to Halloween was the original Halloween was in 1981 when Ooh. the first the second one came out, it was the same week and they aired the original movie on network television for the very first time. It was like the NBC Friday night movie. And oh, nice. I was terrified. And mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact, so much so that I was the whole family that was gathered around for the first half of the movie decided this is just too scary. So everybody went to bed and left me there. So oh, great. <laughs> that's so I got to watch the real scary part of Halloween in the dark alone. I remember pillows piled up around me on the sofa, just peering through them during that climactic chase so it was but but after that it became i don't know just a deep desire to make movies like that because yeah. it had such an emotional visceral impact that i wanted to figure out how they did it and so would so, you say that so would you say that's like the lightning bolt moment for you the moment oh that made you say absolutely a thousand percent so the irony is not lost on friends of mine from a small town in northern california where i grew up called santa rosa that mm -hmm. I went on to make one of these movies, or at least write one, because yeah. they were like, well, of course you did. <laughs> no question in their mind that I was going to happen. Now, the journey, and that doesn't just happen. And I think there's, it's funny, I think my fan circles over the last quarter century, ridiculously enough, it's been that long, but, but they think that I wrote some Halloween script and they just bought it from me. That's not how it happened. Which is what I was really interesting, interested in knowing too, about how you got going into this. Did you have other spec scripts on hand that you were able to like really hone your craft or was this something that, was this just like a, almost like a tunnel vision kind of thing where you knew that it was going to be a Halloween script and it was just a matter of what kind it was going to be? I did a few things. So I do remember there was a moment, and so I moved to Southern California from Northern California. I lived in, my family was kind of gypsies. We were originally from back East, then we moved out West when I was a little mm -hmm. kid. We lived in Los Angeles for several years, decided that wasn't a good place to go to high school. So we moved up North and then right after high school, I just came right back and oh, wow. I've been here ever since. So my dream was always to, even before Halloween, it was like, I was like a Star Wars kid. I was into just film. It was, that's what I loved. It's what I knew. It's what I, it was my passion. Yeah. For my yeah. entire life. Just so anyway, the dream then. Yeah. sometimes it's funny how people say that, but it's, it's a business and you learn yeah. over the years, it's, it is a business that's run by business people. Anyhow, yeah, here I was young guy and Halloween five came out in 89. 89. Yeah. And I remember walking out of the theater with two close friends of mine and saying, I'm going to write Halloween six. 
Oh, like, okay. It wasn't so, a question. It was a statement of absolute verifiable fact in my mind. Like that's going to be the case. I'm going to. And I gotta. I definitely need to interject with this because I remember watching Halloween Five with uh, with my friend um, mm-hmm. Hunter. If he's listening, hi Hunter. And uh, we were just like, what? We were sitting there like in my living room and everything, watching it. And I just remember being like, okay, I love the whole the whole laundry shoot scene. I love the, there's like this real good, strong viciousness that Michael is portraying here, which I really connected with. Donald Pleasance, the late, great Donald Pleasance, as always, just, the man just took any material and just made it better. He really did. He really did. He elevated everything. Yeah. He did, yeah. And um, he was the rock of the series. I think that, I don't think it's, God bless all the people who are making these new ones that they're in Jane Lee coming back. Without him, it's just not the same. And so it really I, is. I, I yeah. feel like the feather in my cap is I wrote the last real Halloween because he was in it. There you go. There you go. And and the but then there were like these other elements to it that were just mm-hmm. okay. Like they're showing right, the right. well they're constantly showing like the mark on Michael's wrist. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. what's that? Which we've and never seen the, before. Yeah. And then you have the then you have this mysterious man, this man stranger. Yes. Yeah, with, we with call, these... They didn't call him the man in black then. They called him the mysterious stranger. That was how they described him. And yeah, nobody knew who he was having seen the movie just the way you did. I didn't know who yeah. he was. And then having not a long after that. great cliffhanger ending. I love well, right. it. Was, I, know, I, I mean, it was cliffhanger ending. That was so cool. There was no mistake that he was dressed like a, like a, a villain in a Western, like a Lee Van Cleef with the cigarette and the black, yeah. really. But what I learned not long after that, having met the late, great Mustafa Akkad, who I always credit with giving me a career as the executive producer of the franchise at the time. They didn't know who he was. They're like, we have no idea. You tell us. That's ballsy. That's incredibly ballsy of them to to go Mm -hmm. with that and just be like, all right, here, you figure it out. (laughs) Well, I don't know if it was necessarily them. I think it was Dominique, who was the director of Halloween 5. My understanding was that he wanted that introduce yeah. create some interest in the ongoing story so i think it was his way of rather than ending it like four with this kind of shocking that one which was a great ending oh, uh, was holding the knife mm-hmm. and i think he wanted something that wouldn't be just as much of a like a like a, a chair jumping shock moment i think he wanted mm-hmm. something that would play throughout the film that would keep the audience guessing and then at the end go oh what's just to continue yeah. the story i just don't think anybody had any clear notion of who that character was gonna turn out to be <laughs> so i think they were pitched a lot of ideas by a lot of different writers and just backing up a bit in a way that i made an introduction to the producers of Halloween. And like I said, this was on the heels of having seen five. And I don't know what it was about that. I was like, I, I got to do this. Yeah. It was the calling. So I reached out to Mustafa's office. He had a he had an office on Sunset Boulevard at the time. And he also had his own distribution company. It was called Galaxy. And he was like distributing his own films. Galaxy International. Um, Galaxy International was the name. Yeah. And there was this thing back in the 80s called Before There Was Internet. And it was called the Hollywood Creative Directory. And you could buy it at any newsstand. And oh, I remember that. Yeah. Like I remember that. I think yeah. I saw like the the ads for it in Premier Magazine. Right. Yeah, correctly. of course. Yeah. yeah, you could buy it online, not online through a mail order yeah. ad. And then you could, if you lived in LA or a big city, I'm assuming, you could just go to the local newsstand and they'd have it. It was like $5. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. it was listed pretty much every major production company or independent one even. And I looked up Galaxy and there it was. So I wrote a letter. And I introduced myself and I said, you know, who I am and what I wanted to do. And <laughs> didn't so much pitch a movie. I just said, listen, I know how to, 
I know this series better than probably anyone. And I am a writer and I don't know how I pitched it, but yeah. lo and behold, I got a call, I don't know, a week or two later from a guy named Ramsey Thomas. He was the producer oh, on yeah. five. Mm-hmm. He was still working at the Galaxy at the time. And he said, you know what? I, I Send me something. Send me a script. We're looking for writers. We're going to do six right away. We're going right in production. So <laughs> you know, we're looking for writers to come. Okay, great. Oh my God. So I, I did like your question earlier about, do I have, did I have spec scripts? Yes. I had three or four that yeah. were horror scripts, not Halloween scripts, but horror scripts. They were like your own character. Exactly. So I, I picked what I thought was the best of the bunch and s- mailed it off to Ramsey via snail mail as mm-hmm. we did back then. And you never really expect to hear anything, but I got a call from him again and said, wow, I really like this. You should come in and meet Mustafa. And holy shit. <laughs> and just so you know, I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anything like that. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any representation at all. Yeah. I hadn't sold a thing. Actually, I had sold a treatment to TriStar Pictures when I was 18. Um, yeah. For a, like a Dooney's Meet the Headless Horseman type of a project. Interesting. Um, so it was like a Sleepy Hollow, but it was more like a Monster Squad. Oh. Man, and never got that, that. But that, you know what? That it was, was a great. It was a. It was something I could put in an introduction letter to Mustafa. Hey, I wrote this thing, and it's called Sleepy Hollow. Like you can see yeah. that and go, okay, maybe this guy knows something. So something like something little, like that would something like that would probably get made today. You know, like, maybe it would. I, you know, it's funny. How, I like, mentioned I mentioned that project a few times, and a couple people have come out of the woodwork going, "Oh my god, we should make that." And I'm like, okay, yeah. So like it's everything. Everything is so like nostalgia based. I right? know, right? Yeah. It's like any days, any though, sort like, of IP. Then, it was like, eh, well, Goonies, and nobody cared. So anyway, it was ahead of my time there. But so cutting to, I got this meeting, this audience with the great Mustafa. I remember walking in and him sitting behind his big desk with his cigar or his pipe, whichever one he had that day. And mm-hmm. I was terrified. I was 19 at that time. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was really, I was a teenager. Yeah. And here I am walking into this executives and the man, the myth of his name that appears at the beginning of these movies, just huge letters, Mustafa Akkad. Presents, that? Yeah. We didn't even know, it was just like a crazy name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I didn't and- know what to expect. And I found this little charming, not very tall, diminutive in stature man sitting behind his big desk. And... I went in there and I went in and out in maybe, I swear the meeting was maybe five minutes. Wow. It just, he didn't, it was like, okay, thank you. But what I did do to try to set myself apart, Mm -hmm. because knowing I knew nothing other than Halloween movies, I wrote, I compiled this like in the week or two or whatever leading up to the meeting, I had spent all this time researching the lore of the holiday of Halloween, putting together like an entire Myers Strode family tree. I put together like the past and the present and the future of what the series could be. It was like this Bible in a way. Yeah. And I put a graphic on the front of the cover of this thing and it was black and it had orange letters and it's Halloween 666 on it. And it had the thorn as the thorn symbol that we saw in five on the stranger's wrist. I put that as the A in the title. And um, nice. so I just wanted something that would leave an impression, even if mm-hmm. I didn't, they call them leave behinds, but they tell you not mm-hmm. to do that in the business because people, they think people steal shit. To me, I didn't care. I was kind of like, oh my God. Yeah. Because it's, it's not, it's your original. No, uh, what am I going to do with it? The guys that are doing it. It's yeah. their character. It's their brand. Real to have been invited in. Mm-hmm. So I, there that was. And then the, then it was five years later. Yeah. Yeah. 
that this came about again because there was a big lawsuit over the rights and it was Carpenter and Hill versus Mustafa's company and Galaxy went out of business. And then I, it was just a big rights drama from what I understand. I know Carpenter and Hill wanted to do it with New Line and then this new Ooh. company called Miramax came along and they wanted to do it with Mustafa. It was a whole just... All those partners from the original who all had a piece of the action were just fighting over the rights to it. You read little bits and pieces of things in the trades and what have you. And I just figured that was nice that I got a, a meeting and I just didn't, didn't necessarily put it out of my mind. I was, of course, fucking bummed, but I just, you just think that's that. Yeah. Until phone <laughs> rang one day and it was in early nine, like spring of 1994. I want to say maybe April or May. Wow. And okay. phone rang and it's Mustafa and he wants me to come in to meet him mm. like immediately. Wow. And I nervously <laughs> throw, <laughs> throw myself together and go to drive over to his new office. And in the room are sitting Mustafa behind that big desk, different office, big same desk. And mm. uh, Paul Freeman, who was the producer of, and his, uh, his son Malik Akkad, who's around oh, nice. my age. Yeah. And so it was the three of them in a, in a room and me, and they explained to me without naming names that they had gone through a number of drafts of the scripts. Mm -hmm. No one had cracked it as far as they were concerned. And this was a, they needed somebody who could work fast, probably work cheap and, <laughs> and get them a script that they could start shooting no later than October of that year. Yeah. And I was like, you're talking to the right guy. And, and I felt like I had, Malik was kind of my champion in the room. I, weirdly, like I had kept in touch with him over the years. Every, I'd drop him a line, ask what was going on. He was always responsive and always friendly with me. And, and I think he was, since we were around the same age, I, I just felt like he was, the, the little things that he did know or could share, he was sharing them to try to maybe lead me a little bit. But mm -hmm. I came in with this tape. And when I said these words, I said, it's, and I pitched this idea of like Jamie, not Jamie any Curtis, like Jamie Lloyd coming back. And they, ah, oh, yeah, that character played out. And I said, yeah, but you left it like a cliffhanger. You really need to do something with it. You've got to wind up that story somehow. Mm -hmm. I said, let her pass the torch to the next group of characters that are in it. Yeah. Okay, we could do that. And and out of that conversation came this like, this pitch, this like Hollywood like elevator pitch line that I just came to. I was like, what if it's like Rosemary's Baby? meets hollow. And when I said that, most of his eyes like lit up. Oh my God. That's great. That's yeah. great. Go write me a treatment of Rosemary's baby meets Halloween. <laughs> and <laughs> if you like that, you will. I do have to, I do have to say, I do have to yeah. uh, cut in really quickly because sure, it's, sure. So, it's so fun. It's so funny that you should say that the Musafa's eyes lit up because last week I was speaking to John Skip, who had, who was one of the, one of the writers that came in for Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Yeah. And he, and there was the whole story in your documentary in Never Sleep Again, yeah. where he said that New Line said to him, it reads like a Stanley Kubrick Nightmare on Elm Street. And mm. he was like, yeah, cool. And they said, no. So it's like, it, some people just don't get that, like that there are attempts to really elevate this material. Right. And something like that, bringing in elements of Rosemary's Baby. What is wrong with that? He, they, he loved that notion. And and then I had to convince them on the Jamie character. And I was just hoping that they would get the 
Danielle Harris to come mm -hmm. back, a lot of things that didn't work out later. But anyway, so off I went and I wrote them this treatment and it was because I'm so young and so eager to please, I wrote this like 30 page opus <laughs> of just an outline. Yeah. And it was, I, mean, I don't know if it was 30 pages, but it was extensive. And mm -hmm. they called me right away and they said, listen, this is, this it was Mustafa himself. And he said, listen, this is great. I love what you're doing with this. I just think it's too much for one movie. So uh, what mm. I love, he's like, here's, we have Halloween six and seven here, Ooh. but let's focus on the first half or mm -hmm. six. And then the second half where you have this much bigger kind of story reveal, let's make that the next one. And I'm like, great. Yeah. Two in one, I'm good. <laughs> that, yeah, so that all of this stuff is sort so of much. happening, and I'm like, yeah. whoa! It's you just along for the ride in a way, but I was, yeah. you know, the whole way, you know, you're terrified and you don't know what you're doing. I didn't. I'd written a couple of indie movies at that point in those that five year span of time that mm -hmm. that things had gone dark, but but I didn't. I wasn't. This was a big studio movie, and some, this mm -hmm. company Miramax and Pulp Fiction had just come out, and there was just a lot of buzz around the Weinstein's, and that it was just a different world that was new and exciting. And we were all, I mean, everybody involved with Halloween Six. I think it was funny to me. It was because Miramax was a subsidiary of the Disney company at the time. So I remember when we <laughs> first started shooting, the studio brass shows up on the set, and they're all wearing these Mickey Mouse jackets, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. And there was also like around the same time that they were developing Hellraiser Bloodline. So <laughs> actually finished that movie. They weren't developing it; it had been done. And unfortunately, some of because that movie was in such sort of creative trouble yeah they took some of the money from our budget from the halloween six budget to go quote unquote fix hellraiser really so wow. that was a bit of a blow to us just mm. out of the gate it's oh that movie you thought you had whatever it was six million dollars well now it's four whoa so <laughs> yeah so very canon pictures of them. Well, that's who they were at that with, point with yeah. a big studio behind them and, and better taste in material maybe, but well, yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, they were who they were and yeah. we learned very quickly. Uh, we're not just, it's not like the original Halloween where it was like kids making a movie for 300 grand. This was <laughs> corporate mm. and it felt like it at some so level. So it's almost like Mickey Mouse is just kind of like casting no, this Yeah, no pun intended, right? Yeah, no, it literally was. And I just felt, I think that there was a sinking feeling that, that kind of hit me early in the process. The writing process was fine. I was always supported by Mustafa and even Paul, certainly Mal. Like I felt yeah. like within that group, I was protected. But mm -hmm. when it started going out to Miramax, slash dimension for notes and for for their imprint it just started to feel kind of messy mm. and and then the casting process started to get even messier and yeah it just from the get-go i just knew we're off, off to, to a bad start yeah it almost seemed like they were like making changes just to make them there was no real rhyme or reason to do these certain things like the way that they treated danielle like it's yeah yeah any anyone with like half a half a bit of passion for this series would know how integral a role that she that yeah she and they in that. and that's the thing mustafa knew because yeah. of, he had cast her in the first the two when he was independently making these movies but miramax had they're like we don't care about her 
Yeah. Like, she's a day player. And, <laughs> and we're not paying her a penny more. And no disrespect to J.C. Brandy. I thought she did. She did a yeoman's job. Like, yeah, with, yeah. With she what she, when she came to set nervous. And we're all like, the thing is, like, the one thing that was cool about that movie is we all were so young. Paul Rudd was, <laughs> we're on the stage. <laughs> and we're all out in Salt Lake City. And it's like we're making this movie. So there was just that excitement around that. Well, strangely and, enough, Paul Rudd is still the same age. And he's still the same I mean, age. But he was great to work with. And everybody was just, like, so game yeah, and yeah. i think i just felt i felt and maybe it was just some people blowing smoke up your butt but mm-hmm. i really felt like everybody was committed to making this script and to making it work only to find yeah. out that wasn't quite the case so they mm-hmm. were gonna make whatever they were gonna make yeah but listen budget is always a thing and now i've produced a number of movies and direct budgets always got to be a consideration when you start to think about movies like a franchise like halloween where certain things there are certain expectations going in that yeah. you're not just making an indie horror experimental movie. Like you have to hit the beats and you have to right. deliver the mask, the Myers house, that all mm-hmm. those things should have been done properly. And yeah. I remember asking, you know, there's a line in the movie that I, and there's several lines in the movie that made it astoundingly where I'm literally talking about my displeasure with how this is being put together. So there's yeah. all those lines of the the DJ host, <laughs> the Howard Stern guy. And he's like, I'm taking this show to the real Myers house where we should have done it. And that was me saying, this mm-hmm. whole fucking thing is fucked. Build the house. Yeah. Or go back to South Pasadena and make this movie properly. To me, it was just a lot of people, a lot of cooks in the kitchen who didn't care what we were making as long yeah. as we made it. Yeah. And we made it on budget. And, and that I- was the bad part of it. And that's why I feel like it got off track like they're mm-hmm. just when there are that many people making decisions you just get a hodgepodge yeah i i remember just sitting in the theater where and seeing that that great reveal of dr wen being the mysterious stranger mm-hmm. and then a little bit later on when he's talking to loomis well actually at that point he wasn't talking to anyone because no, unfortunately, right. you know who unfortunately was donald had left us who he was wasn't. talking to me i was the one feeding him lines off camera no kidding mm-hmm. okay oh wow Wow. And uh, yeah, the, but the entire time it, that now, you know, like knowing that, that actually it felt like it was almost like them kind of twisting the knife a little bit because they, mm-hmm. because the entire time he's basically denigrating everything that was supposed to be there. Right. Like, he, he doesn't really believe in, in, in this. Right. Stuff. And, he's and that was all, the, you know, again, that was after we had that, what we call producers cut now, director's cut. He just, the director was a nice guy and I, people have given him a lot of shit over the years and he's really, I think, taken the high road and he's never really talked about this movie, but I yeah. think it's because he was dragged through the mud and I think there's like, weirdly like this like hate campaign. It's just like freaking internet stuff. I was subjected to it last year when I did a movie on Sharon Tate. I, I got death threats over that movie. Yeah, It's hard to be in that position where you're targeted. And so I understand Joe's reasons. Listen, he did the best I thought he could do under the circumstances. Yeah. That being said, he he had other motivations, which had to do with the fact he had a couple, he had a baby and I think another one on the way. And he so was, he had to he had to get that, you know, get not only finish this one, but make sure he secures the next yes, one. Yes, that's exactly it. And I felt like his motivation was, and listen, who wouldn't at that time with a hot ticket in town and they were courting him and oh, and then they brought him in to quote, fix Hellraiser for them. And so he was busy with that. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about, we got to fix Halloween. And 
you know, his energies were scattered at that point. And, and I think Cod Camp didn't appreciate the fact that he had gone to the Miramax side of it all. Mm. There were just camps were being created, us versus them. And it's just that kind of political shit that I just hated. <laughs> I just want to make cool movies. But people get caught up in that stuff. And it's just it's part of it. What I said at the beginning, it's a business. And you mm-hmm. have to play that game a little bit. So anyhow, but... Yeah, I think Joe, in a way, let the movie be whatever it was going to be. I, I felt like at some point he gave up on it. I don't know. Yeah. And he was just playing more for the Miramax team at that point, And whatever they said, he was okay with. So I felt like that's where I was disappointed in him. I thought he should have fought for the vision of the movie, what we all signed up to make. And instead, I felt like he was taking their side of it more and kind of wanting to put his own imprint on the movie. And I'm like, in your indie movies, cool, but this is a Halloween movie. Right. And, and there are certain you things owe it that to are the fans to yeah. give them. When you go to McDonald's, you don't want a Carl's Jr. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible <laughs> comparison, but you know what I'm saying? A, oh, they yeah, call it yeah. a franchise for a reason because you're getting a certain. And speaking of that, like there was, uh, there was one major sticking point for me that really turned me against the theatrical cut, especially when I saw the producer's cut, mm. was how they, how the how the producer's cut actually feels like it's part of a continuing story because there's so many right. elements, so many reminders, so mm-hmm. many great reminders yeah. of Loomis saying, talking about how he yeah. fixed his face. And then talking about after my stroke six years ago, like there's so much there. Yeah, there's definitely more continuity between the earlier films. The director, Joe, I remember him telling me at one point, and this was around the time of the the reshoots and and editing and all of this. And I just remember him saying, my movie needs to stand on its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they even like lopped off the number. It really does. Yeah, they even took the number off. Like it doesn't need to stand on its own. It needs to be the continuing story of mm-hmm. Halloween 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. We leave out 3 because that was a different universe. Although I'm curious, I am curious to know yeah. like what your thoughts were regarding 3 because mm-hmm. I know that they they made a point to show Halloween on the TV and everything when Right. Well, here's a funny on. one. My my thoughts on Halloween 3 is or it, it's a great movie, but it's not called Halloween 3. Yeah. Um or just season of the witch or something, but I enjoyed it for at the time when it came out and I was having seen Halloween and Halloween 2 and 3 came out the next year. And I was, although I was a bit of a Fangoria nerd even then, so I kind of knew it wasn't going to be continuation, but I hope it's the rest. Yeah. Oh, halfway through the movie, it'll be Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he's I, a robot. I didn't, I didn't care. I just wanted to see that mask. I even did. In my own treatment, I even sent it over to Trancus International, just like a, a quick little query when they decided that they were going to go forward with the eighth film. Mm-hmm. And I like I had this whole like very looking back on it, it was very convoluted, but at the same time, like it, it actually brought in elements from three. I just had one of my main characters as a as like a descendant of Connell mm-hmm. Cochran. Well, and I wasn't so, as specific yeah. as that with six, but there are a couple of Halloween three nods in it. One of which is yeah. Minnie Blankenship, which is the lady who lives across the street. Who's, she's like the Ruth Gordon of My Rosemary's Baby meets Halloween. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing, which didn't make it into the movie, is they never shot it, was mm-hmm. a scene where the cranky dad comes home drunk after work and mm-hmm. nobody's his home because everybody's dead. And he, in the script, he comes in, he's complaining, where's my dinner and all this. And yeah. comes into the living room and he and, the, and he turns the TV on and it's Halloween three is on the horathon. That's the movie oh, nice. that they're showing. And then he turns <laughs> it off and he goes, Oh, what's this shit? And he turns it off. <laughs> that's 
great. That's but there was great. this whole like cat and mouse between him yeah. and, and the shape goes into the kitchen to make himself a, a microwave dinner and he puts it in and then he goes back and somebody turned the TV back to Halloween three. And then oh, he goes back cool. to the kitchen and Michael took the food out of the microwave and it's missing. Nice. But there was this whole that's fun. thing. That so that's fun. what Michael Myers <laughs> is. He's a trickster. Yeah. So all of the stuff that made that I tried to put back into it that made him that trickster, they just took it out. You know, yeah. they never shot it because it was just time on the schedule. What do you need that for? Just kill people. Yeah. So, so I, I just I have just a... way doing things. Yeah. So I have just a couple of questions that I want to keep, you know, keep your two. Yeah, yeah. No, Um, this is great. Like the one thing that I was so thrilled for was in 2015 when when the big 15 disc collector's edition box, Mm -hmm. which I knew that's the one I was going to get. Oh, yeah. So cool. And of of course, I got it. And the first one I put in is the producer's cut for Halloween six. six. I know. And right? I just I absorbed the, the damn thing. I went through all the <laughs> you know the different features. I was listening to the whole commentary. Nice. I felt so almost like it, it was like validating. It's a completist type of thing, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. I fought for that for a long time, let me tell you. In fact, it got so down to the wire with that, they could not find the soundtracks, the sound elements that went with that version. They found the negative which was mm-hmm. great because the movie looked beautiful and brand new. It really does, yeah. But they couldn't find the sound and they were going to just t- almost like tape something together from like the bootleg version. And I'm like, oh, it's oh, really? Yeah. So no, I, don't... with Alan Howarth, the composer, with his help, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, because I had done so much research on this on my own. Yeah. I had tracked, this is 10 years prior to that. I had tracked down all of the boxes in the vault somewhere in Toronto, Canada that all this stuff had been shipped to and it had all these serial numbers on it. And I remember the little lady and it was at the deluxe lab, which is like Mm -hmm. one of the film laboratories. And I'll never forget because her name was Marilyn Monroe and Mm. she was the sweetest woman. And she said, listen, I'll send you a a copy of what we have. And it lists all the boxes and serial numbers and they're meaningless to me. But I happened to, I was being the (laughs) anal retentive, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Order that I am. No, nothing I, wrong with that. Nothing I, wrong with that, especially I, if that's what I, it would have produced. I kept that document from 10 years before and it had all the serial numbers of everything. And yeah. through that, they were able to actually it was Alan Howarth. I sent it to him because he's involved in the sound. And yeah. I said, what do the, these serial numbers mean? He goes, this is sound. This is sound. This is sound. This, and he circled them all. And with that, they were able to track them down. And that's how they found it. Otherwise, they would have never found it because it was hidden. It was like literally misfiled and had been moved to some different vault. But the, because they had tracking numbers on all the boxes, that's yeah. how they were able to locate it. But oh, otherwise, okay. we wouldn't have had. We would have had that great quality video and bootleg sound. Oh, would have been a disaster. So I was wow. thrilled that they found it and it came yeah. out. And I thought, oh, I'll never. Thank God, I'll never get another email about the producer's cut because. It was <laughs> and yet, I still. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I think it's almost like a prize for all of the, mm-hmm. for all the fans. To it's have a bit this. of an Easter egg kind of thing, like before there were Easter eggs. Yeah, it's just a very different kind of mood and tone. Mm-hmm. The score is totally different. There's moments, even not just cut scenes, but there's just little character moments that just ended up on the editing room floor. And that was all studio, just trying to like, they just wanted to make this movie that was just a sort of gore fest that didn't need to have much of a plot. It just needed yeah. to move. It just needed to move faster. It needed to have... 
I don't know. I honestly, the whole thing was so confounding to me, especially that ending. And I, and I sat there, I was there during some of those reshoots and just remember going, what is this? What, what are yeah. you guys do? What is this going to be? And, and I won't name names, but somebody came up to me and said, it'll all make sense when you see it. And I'm like, it's mm. 25 years later. I still don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard <laughs> because it's your name up there. It's like written by. So people think yeah. you wrote that everything, every word in there is yours and it's far from it. So right. that was definitely an example of movie by committee. And yeah. um, that's not always a good thing. So is the producer's cut like that final, that the way that ended, which mm-hmm. is controversial in itself with the whole, with the power of the runes and everything. Now, was that <laughs> kind of magic like, acorns. now was that kind of like basically just like a, you didn't write that part at all? Nope. Really? Okay. Because that, that was, was I, I want to say that the director wanted something mystical. And then yeah. like overnight, there were suddenly these pages where he was going to take these rocks. And I, I don't mm-hmm. know. I think I may have had some hand in how they were going to do it. But I just remember being like, this is so goofy. And how is this going to work? And they couldn't even spring for a special effect with like, like a Connell Cochran rain of light. Give me something like that. Yeah. This whole thing with, with Loomis becoming... Michael's new caretaker. Now that was my idea. I thought, what a weird twist it would be. To that like, was a great twist. I had another chapter of this where like Loomis has taken on this sort of mantle of protector rather than pursuer, the hunter, you know? Yeah. So, and I'd written the, the role of Dr. Wynn, who turns out to be this Mr. Stranger, it was written. I wrote it for legit, like legitimately wrote the role with Christopher Lee in mind. That would have been great. Because he was originally approached to play Loomis. That's right. That's right. And I said, let's make him the evil doctor. And nobody thought that was a good idea. (sighs) They just don't get it. They just don't get it. No, they don't get it. The way the way I'm saying the the studio side. Yeah. And then and now remind you, this is like years before like the renaissance of Christopher Lee and Lord of the Rings and all of that. I hope that they were and of course they would never acknowledge that they were wrong. Yeah, but how cool would it have been to have Christopher Lee and Donald Pleasance in Donald Pleasance's last film? Mm-hmm. That would have been that would have been would fantastic. Because awesome. mm-hmm. yeah, because the the theatrical cut definitely plays like uh, like the like one for for regular teens and everything to just come in, have a laugh, yeah. and watch some gore. Which was the completely their intent. That's right. all they wanted. But then the producer's cut, that's for the fan. Like that's yeah, for, it is. You know. but to me, it's, it's so much stuff that was always missing, like the dad coming home and Michael Myers yeah. playing cat and mouse with him. And just all the setups just always felt like, why are we rushing through this? Like, mm-hmm. like milk it, make it scary. And so, for me, that's where all of it was just like lacking fundamentally in the suspense of it all. And, and I just felt like they never really captured tone of what I was going for, which was this kind of, it's like the witches come out on Halloween and it's that sort of like the veil between the living and the dead is thin and that's what the boogeyman represents and all that kind of lore of the piece that I felt like I was really trying to attend to that. And a little bit of that was set up by even John Carpenter. So I just, I was trying to bring maybe too much to the table. And then they had that, they wanted this goofy mythology. Oh, the stars align and it's thorn in the sky. All of that stuff was just came later. So the scene with with Tommy Doyle basically like telling the whole story History, of yeah. the, of the Thor of the the Thorn Cold and and mm-hmm. the yeah. and ha- the, the one moment that really had me just really sitting up in my seat when I first watched that was the way that he traced it back through the other films. I thought mm-hmm. that, that was a great yeah touch. yeah yeah. That was and of course to... that and of course that was cut, cut out of the theatrical cut. Yeah, they did. Yeah. 
Yeah, they just want any, that was like, I think a mandate of Bob Weinstein. He was like, I don't want any references to any other. It's bad enough. We've got this guy. We got to deal with this kid who was in the first movie. And that's so stupid. And right. just, oh yeah, it was just, yeah. that was just, his attitude toward it was like, who cares about any of that? Just make it gory. That's, like just, he felt not... like the whole movie was like laden with baggage from previous films and just get rid of all of that stuff. Um, that, 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 was, just, that, that just, that was just the way, you know? Yeah, well. Yeah. You know, and I, you know, I think the Akkads learned the hard way too, because they were saddled with those people for the next four movies or whatever. Yeah. So it was just, yeah. it was, it, what started out bad with ours, I heard, got worse and worse as the years went on. Yeah, I'm sure with with Halloween Resurrection, you know, because oh that god, was, yeah, I mean, I, every I, one I, of I, them was a was like a, a disaster relationship, yeah. trying their best to try to like pull something out when all you had was like crazy Bob Weinstein and his little band of lackeys just trying to get their fingers on everything they could. And I'm sorry, I'm just talking shit about them, but they deserve it. Yeah. They are where they are for a reason. Well, they're horrible people. They're <laughs> yeah. horrible people. And yeah. um, not, I'm not saying everybody that worked there was, they weren't, they were actually some pretty no. Yeah, old no. people. And I'm still in touch with a few of them, but the enablers were, absolutely terrible and and the fact that he those brothers got away with what they got away with for so long is mm -hmm. and yeah. anyhow but and it was never on the train and in fact like i said i use my writer's voice but they say the power of the pen so i use that to like <laughs> voice my frustration with the wine scenes i remember mm -hmm. in the the it was my radio dj character he was just because he could be such a you know, loudmouth howard stern whatever say whatever he wanted to say so i just use my anger my frustration with that whole group of people and used mm -hmm. him as my weapon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember he was saying there was a line in the script where he said, I forgot what it is in the final movie, but the original script, he said, Bob Harvey. I'm calling Bob Harvey. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's great. That's great. They made me, they made so, me, the Miramax people were like horrified. They're like, you can't say that. And I'm like, well, I just did. <laughs> so to put my, fi my final stamp on, on this part of it, because we Definitely got to have you back on. Oh, that'd be amazing. More. Yeah, I have, to, like I have to jump down. I'm sorry, my yeah. time's a little limited today, but I would love to revisit. Of course, we'll talk about this and other things, but we'll figure yeah. out a time and make that happen. Maybe around. Yeah. So the so what I just I just need to ask is the that final shot of <laughs> Michael walking away. Oh and right. He's got the mysterious stranger. He's got yeah. Now, when that happened, did you was that still with that part seven in mind? Was there going to be like something on that, or was that kind of like? their way of just I mean, separating himself from everything yeah, no michael was gonna always come back and be michael i'm sure yeah. there was never gonna be any in intention i think that was just a getaway like it was almost I like he was freeing himself from that from yeah the, in a way from he was freeing himself thing. but i listened by if we made the movie the way we talked about making it he would have found another mask and i remember i pitched it, uh, like a road movie it would start off like right after and tommy doyle was being accused of all these murders in Haddonfield. like they thought he was oh. like the Crazed like a copycat, almost like the way that Tommy Jarvis was in, in Friday Thirteenth Part Six. You know, like that's kind of yeah. Sheriff but Garris quite. was looking at him and saying, "Right, you know, that's saying, true. That's true." I did, yeah. yeah, but it was more of like it was more of a road movie at the first yeah. half of it. It was like The Hitcher. Oh, nice! And it was nice. like Tommy being set up for all this stuff, and Michael's playing road games with him until they get back to Haddonfield, where they what we were going to realize or reveal was that the entire town of Haddonfield was part of this like secret society this form. oh that's that would have been very cool that would have been very so you would have cool. you know there would have been some payoff to mini Blankenship and all the characters yeah. that would you know so it would all of there was 
So six was the first part of that story. Next time we have you on, we definitely need to talk about both the Never Sleep Again doc, uh, documentary and the Crystal Lake Memories documentary. Both of them are fantastic. They're so much fun to watch. And I hope that all of you basically just go ahead and listen to the commentary tracks in the meantime until we bring Dan back for that for that talk. But but this really was just like such a great eye-opening discussion. And oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Was, your interest. And, <laughs> it and, amazes yeah. me to all these years later that people still talk about this movie. I never dreamed that 25 years down the road anybody would even remember it. So there's something about these movies that really just kind of, that really oh. grabs us. And that's what yeah. it comes down to with your whole Excelsior journey to begin with. Like it started with this film, with the original right. film. Absolutely. And how you were able to take it and run with it and make that passion become a reality is so inspiring to so many people and i really hope that all of you i really hope that all of you who are listening have been able to to remember that because like we all have our passions and we all really want to hold on to those dreams but at the same time it's really something special when you're able to take them cultivate them and make them a reality that's what dan has done that's what i hope all of you do and so for Daniel Ferens, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward, and I will see you next week. And happy Halloween. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.